This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter offer code Irish Times at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace's European Operations and Customer Service Office is located right here in Dublin. Squarespace, build it beautiful. You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview with the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley, standing in this week for Dennis Staunton. For many of us, the defining image of the summer of 2015 will likely be that of people desperately fleeing their home countries in Africa or the Middle East in pursuit of a better life within the borders of the European Union. The EU's migrant crisis, as it has come to be known, is now the biggest challenge facing Europe's political leaders, bigger even, German Chancellor Angela Merkel has suggested, than the last all-consuming crisis over Greece and the future of the euro. We're focusing this week on the migrant issue, and I'm joined on the line by Daniel McLaughlin, our correspondent, who is on the Hungary-Serbia border, one of the many flashpoints in this rather grim drama that has been playing out on our television screens every night. Dan, can you tell us first exactly where you are and what type of scenes you've been witnessing today? Yeah, I'm, um, I've been going to various villages on, on both sides of the border, really, um, just trying to get a picture of how things are uh, on both sides, how both sides, both, both states, Serbia and Hungary, are trying to deal with this, and what the impact has been of this, um, this razor-wire fence that, that Hungary has unfurled along the whole 175-kilometre border between the two countries. Um, they completed it over the weekend, a couple of days early. So I wanted to really get an idea of how it was affecting the, the, the flow of migrants, whether it was actually stopping people moving through, and what, what impact it was having. Um, and really, all along the border, it, it's having no impact at all. Um, people, are, people of all ages are going under the wire, they're going over the wire, they're throwing um, you know, blankets and thick clothes over the wire and getting through it. So... Um, in terms of, uh, of halting the flow, it's not doing that at all. Um, the only thing it might be doing is, is sort of funneling the migrants through certain areas um, and making them, in theory, a, a bit easier to pick up on the Hungarian side. So they're tending to, to focus on, on um, areas of the border that are obviously still open, like uh, country roads, obviously, that aren't covered by the wire and railway tracks. So um, I've been in a few, uh, a few villages where... The, the, the main roads are running through and the main railway tracks are running through and we're seeing a, a constant flow basically at any one time on any of these main routes you can see dozens and sometimes hundreds of people moving through um, and the people on the Hungarian side, the police, doing their best to round up as many as possible and put them through the, um, the reception and the, um, and the registration process. And if the, the razor wire fence is so easy to penetrate Dan, what do you think was the purpose of putting it there in the first place? It was a kind of pet project of the Prime Minister, Viktor Orban. Was it ever uh, intended as a serious uh, barrier to people coming into the European Union, or was it more of a a symbolic stance on his part? Um, It's very interesting. There are are lots of different aspects to it, I think. I mean, there's certainly a domestic political aspect, because um, uh, Orban's uh, right-wing government... um, is under some pressure from, from the far right in Hungary, a party called Jobbik, which is the, the second most popular in the country, according to most opinion polls, um, who, as you would imagine, take a very, very strong line on, um, on migration and, and illegal migration, as they see it. Um, and uh, there's a feeling that, that, that Orban and his, his government uh, and his party, Fidesz, are being pulled to the right on this, on this subject, um, on this issue, and they're trying to counter 
the strong challenge they're getting from the far right. So tighter border security, the, the razor wire fence, and reinforcements of something like uh, 2,000 police on the border are, are all part of that on the one hand. Um, at the same time, Orban says that um, Hungary simply can't cope with the, with the numbers coming through. Something like 150,000 uh, migrants have crossed illegally into Hungary this year. And officials say that the, the, the migration system just can't cope with it. The, the uh, um, migration centers and the migration camps where uh, asylum seekers are supposed to wait uh, until their asylum, a decision has been passed on their asylum request. Um, these, these camps are running at sort of three and four times capacity now. Um, they, they, they really can't cope with the numbers coming through. Um, and there's also an aspect that, you know, it seems that Hungary really wanted to... Um, uh, get the EU's attention with this. I mean, they're saying that we can't cope with it, and and the rules that are in place at the moment uh, simply aren't fit for purpose. So one of the key rules that Hungary has a problem with um, is this thing called the Dublin regu Regulation. One aspect of this is that uh, asylum seekers should uh, be sent back to the first European Union country in which they register as asylum seekers. So if they make it through beyond Hungary to you know, Germany or Sweden or the Netherlands, where most of the migrants want to go, they should, according to EU rules, be sent back to Hungary and their asylum uh, uh, request should be dealt with there. Hungary saying that, look, you know, this is a desperate measure. We have to try and seal our border because uh, with these amounts of numbers and these European Union regulations in place, for lots of different reasons, we simply can't cope and something fundamental has to change. So lots of different aspects to the fence. Um, and perhaps the least successful of them all has been, has been the aspect of trying to stop people moving through. It hasn't done that, but it has, if anything, um, raised this, this, uh, this migration issue even higher on the European agenda uh, over the last few days. And events today in Budapest would suggest maybe some some further evidence of disarray or indecisiveness on the Hungarian government's part, because today they closed the... The, um, the the Eastern Railway terminus uh, to migrants. Um, there have been protests there. Um, uh, migrants outside the station chanting Germany, Germany, because they want clearly want to get to Germany. And until today, they were being facilitated in, in doing that. So again, what does that tell us about uh, maybe incoherence on the Hungarian government's part and about policy towards uh, on the migrant issue in Europe in general? Yeah, it's very hard to see what the... I mean, there is really no consistency on the Hungarians' part on this. And this is, is very confusing, not only for the migrants, but for uh, the other countries in the European Union who are trying to deal with this problem in various ways. Um, because over, over the recent weeks and months, uh, as these migrant numbers have built up, Hungary has insisted that they, they are not allowed to travel on international trains and buses. So they've been trying to pull people off on the border, and they have been pulling people off on the border. If they've been on trains, for example, going through to Austria, trains and buses, migrants have been taken off and sent back into Hungary. Um, obviously, we had this terrible case uh, late last week of, of 71 um, asylum seekers, most of them we think from Syria, being found dead in the back of a truck that had come from Hungary and was, was basically abandoned on the, on the side of the motorway in Austria. Um, this caused you know, shock and, and revulsion across the European Union. So partly uh, cases like that have caused 
um, not just Hungary, but, but, but other countries like Germany and Austria, to crack down on people smugglers. So there are more and more checks on the borders now. But also it's increased pressure on Hungary to allow those, those asylum seekers and, and migrants in general to, to use public transport, to use those international trains. So yesterday they allowed thousands of them to get on those trains suddenly. So they got on the trains in, in Hungary and they went through to Austria, some carried on through to Germany, which obviously just um, increased people's desire to get to, to, to Budapest and to jump on these trains because the way the migrants saw it, there had been a a clear change in policy, and they could now travel through. They could get a ticket in Hungary, and they could travel on a train safely through to Western Europe. But then today, as you said, this morning, um, at Keleti Station in, in, in Budapest, we had thousands of people outside, many of whom had bought a ticket, and they had spent some of their very precious and scarce funds on an international train ticket, only to find that the rules had changed again. And they couldn't get on these same trains that they'd been able to get on yesterday, um, and they were they were stuck outside the station. Now, as far as we know, they're still outside the station. The the, the, the trains are operating. The trains are leaving from Kelty Station, but migrants are not being allowed onto those trains if they if they don't have the right documents. And you know, the overwhelming majority do not have these documents. Otherwise, they wouldn't be travelling the way that they're travelling. So it, it's very very inconsistent. Um, and we also see a, a, a splits along various lines emerging in in Europe. We have Germany calling for more solidarity for countries to take uh, migrants on a, or, or asylum seekers or refugees on a on a quota basis, so they would be shared around the the union effectively in terms of um, according to each country's capacity to to absorb refugees. Um, but in Central Europe, uh, if we look at Hungary, Poland. Czech Republic, Slovakia, these countries in particular have taken a very strong line against this quota suggestion. And they say that we want nothing to do with it. We're merely transit countries. We're not capable of coping with these people if they come to us. We're predominantly Christian countries. We, we, we don't know what to do and how we would cope with a large influx of Muslims. Um, and over the next few days, we're likely to see more developments on this um, and possibly uh, this rift, this rift uh, between East and West growing in Europe, because tomorrow Viktor Orban, the Hungarian Prime Minister, is due to meet top European Union officials to discuss this. And on Friday, the leaders of those countries in Central Europe, Poland, Slovakia, Czech Republic, and Hungary are getting together to formulate what they're talking about, what, what, what they're calling at the moment a, a tough and unified position, which at the moment at least looks like it will... Um, uh, be an attempt to, to form a kind of bulwark against uh, German suggestions, German-led suggestions of uh, this quota system as a possible solution to the to the migration crisis. And on that point, Dan, you wrote a very interesting piece in the Irish Times on Saturday about that and about the the, the stance taken by Central and Eastern European um, members of the EU, and you know, pointing out that you know the citizens of these countries have benefited, you know, in recent years from freedom of movement within the European Union, but they then, in turn, have a very hardline stance towards those trying to come in. And there are some very almost peculiar attitudes, aren't there? You just touched on it there a moment ago. But, I mean, Slovakia, for example, said it could take 200, but it could only take Christians because it doesn't have any mosques. Um, that, that seems a very regressive, uh, to say the least, um, attitude. Can, can that kind of attitude prevail, do you think, in in, in the European Union of today? It's, um, it, I mean, extraordinary when you do see um, the contrast between these countries and, uh, and the official attitudes expressed by their leaders, by the presidents and prime ministers, which seem, um, 
yeah, extremely reactionary to lots of people in Western Europe. Um, and we saw at the weekend, for example, I mean, Germany, again, seems to be taking a, a very strong lead on this. We saw across the, just as an example of, of diff, different attitudes in society, perhaps, we saw at lots of the Bundesliga football games in Germany, um, fans unfurling huge banners saying uh, refugees are welcome, uh, inviting refugees to Germany. And, um uh, and really, you know, putting pressure on their own government to open up the gates and allow refugees to find uh, to find safety in Germany. You don't see anything like that in Central and Eastern Europe. Um, and it's partly because, you know, the far right in many of these countries is quite strong. And a lot of uh, the conservative and, and, and sort of center-right governments that are in power uh, feel like they do have to take a very, very tough line on on immigration to to counter the rise of the far right. Um, so it's very hard to um, it's very hard to see how this will be resolved because these leaders, including Orban and and Robert Fico, for example, in in um, Slovakia and the Czech president Milos Zeman, they've all taken very strong lines on this and said things like, you know, we're worried that this will bring terrorism into Central Europe. It's going to encourage the rise of Islamic State in Central Europe. We haven't got any mosques, so how could we cope with them? These kind of things. So there is a great resistance to change on this on this point throughout Central Europe. Um, and they're also saying, you know, a couple of the countries have claimed, particularly the Czech Republic and uh, Poland, have said, well, you know, it's not that we're against uh, migrants, but we, 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 don't know, we, we don't have a big Muslim community here. We're not used to dealing with them. And also we have to uh, prepare ourselves for a possible influx from Ukraine. I mean, there hasn't been much of an influx from Ukraine and Ukraine's conflict into these countries. And there is no prediction from international agencies that that's going to happen. So... Um, it really looks like a, a pretty feeble excuse and, and, and their way of um, avoiding responsibility, really, and, and rebuffing these calls led by Germany for, uh, for solidarity. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Start your free trial site today with no credit card required at squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code IRISHTIMES to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. Dan, you've been talking to um, many of those on the move. Um, what kind of stories have they been telling you and, and um, wh- where have they been coming from and what kind of circumstances um, are, are people really d- so desperate to get away from? Well, um, I mean, this is another thing that doesn't, um, that doesn't chime really with, with, with what we're finding here. I mean, the statements from East, Central and Eastern European leaders that, uh, and even Western, some Western European leaders um, and officials in, in Britain, for example, claiming that most of these, these uh, migrants and asylum seekers are actually moving for economic reasons. I mean, that doesn't chime with figures that we're getting from international aid, aid agencies, and it doesn't chime with my experience covering this story now quite extensively for the last couple of months or the experience of, uh, of colleagues that I speak to uh, who've, uh, who've also been working on this for a long time. Um, I mean, the majority of, of um, the people moving through this area seem to be Syrian. There are also lots of Afghans, lots of Iraqis. Um, there are people from African conflict zones like Somalia and Eritrea. Um, there are a, a large number of Pakistanis as well who perhaps would be considered to be moving for economic reasons. There are some Bangladeshis as well. Um, but they all have, uh, you know, stagger- stories of just staggering um, uh, endurance, really, in, in, in 
sort of walking most of the way from, you know, Central Asia in a lot of cases, in the case of the Afghans and the Pakistanis. Um, the Syrians have often taken just horrendous risk to, to escape their country. Um, and then all along the route, they're, they're not only going through great physical hardship, but they're having to um, deal with people smugglers who are taking huge amounts of money, for example, on the uh, a rickety and potentially life-threatening boat from Turkey to a Greek island. They're having to pay at least $1,000 a head. Um, and then they're often just being abandoned uh, before they even reach Greek shores by by the people smugglers and, and, and being told to sink the boat in some cases to make sure that the Greeks look after them. Um, and then here around the border, there was a case that I mentioned in, uh, and, and this is by no means, this isn't anywhere close to being unique. This is a story that you hear from, from I would say, the majority of people at, at one of the borders along the way. They had to pay huge sums to, to people who will either guide them across or in some cases will simply claim to be sort of pointing them down a safe road a road on which they won't be caught by the police on the other side. And there was a case that I mentioned in, in, in the story that was published today, um, a mass teacher from from Iraq who was resting on the Hungarian side of the border yesterday morning, and he had paid um, 1,400 euros a head for, the three, for, for himself and his wife and his young son. Uh, to a guy on the Serbian side of the border who promised him that he would point him in the right direction so he could get through from Serbia into Hungary and not be caught by a border patrol on the Hungarian side of the border. Most people don't want to be caught on this side because they want they don't want to be registered as an asylum seeker in Hungary. They want to move on to Western Europe. In this particular man's case, he'd... Um, he wanted to move on to Belgium, where his parents were living. You know, a quite a reasonable... Uh, uh, request and ambition, you know, where uh, somewhere where he could, uh, where there was already some kind of life waiting for him and some kind of assistance, and his, pa his parents living there, um, and he paid yeah 4,200 euros, um, and he'd been caught immediately on the other side of the border, um, and he just felt he felt deceived. He felt you know these these were some of his last savings. He didn't have much money left. Um, and lots of people on the uh, on the various borders that I've been speaking to, uh, they just don't understand why uh, why it's so hard for them to find safety in Europe, um, because they are saying, and also lots of the volunteers who are helping them are saying, you know, we're going to get here anyway. You know, if we go through these uh, literally death-defying journeys to get to Europe. Um, we're not just going to turn around and go back again. We will keep trying because the situations we're leaving behind are are impossible to live with, um, and they're willing to risk their own lives and their, their, their whole family's lives to find something safer, to find safety and to find what they hope will be eventual eventual prosperity. And they're saying, well, wouldn't it be? Wouldn't Europe prefer us to arrive, you know, with our savings in our pockets, with you know several thousand dollars or euros with which to start making a new life? rather than having to give these euros away to criminals en route, um, and you're, you're providing huge amounts of money to the black economy, to basically mafia groups in the Balkans. And these asylum seekers are still going to arrive in Western Europe, but they're going to arrive um, penniless, they're going to arrive desperate, um, and they're going to arrive, you know, embittered, basically, as to... Um, 
uh, as to why Europe has made it so hard for them to 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 reach a safe and uh, and a secure place to live, mm, and so, even and yeah, even more yeah, dependent, the, of course, the, the yeah. general picture. That's the general picture that yeah. I'm hearing along the route. And of course, in that circumstance, they arrive even even more dependent on on maybe welfare, the welfare regime of the state they're arriving in. If they, if as you say, if they've had to hand over all Absolutely. of their money on route. Uh, I was just I was just going to say, Chris, that there's also a very interesting difference between the people from the different countries. I mean. Um, Afghans and Pakistanis, for example, Somalis, Eritreans are clearly the poorest en route, and their their journeys tend to take the longest and be the most arduous. When you meet lots of the, the Syrians in particular that I meet, um, and many of the Iraqis as well, I mean they are they are clearly from 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 the middle class back home, and they are very well educated. They often speak several languages, and they're travelling with quite large amounts of money, which they could use to set up, you know, uh, to establish themselves in the West. But as it is, they're, they're, they are the main targets for the criminal groups that are making huge amounts of money um, all along the route. And is it your is it your impression, Dan, that most of them? You mentioned that man who wanted to get to Belgium. Do most of them have a particular end destination point in mind, or do they just? really want to get somewhere within the European Union. And I ask the question because it's, it's relevant to the debate we're having here. There was a government TD on, on radio at the weekend saying, well, well, we don't know how many of the Syrians want to come to Ireland. Um, is it your impression that they do have, uh, many of them are looking to link up with relatives um, in Germany and Sweden and, and other countries? Or would many of them be happy to come to Ireland? Well, I think many of them probably would be happy to come to Ireland. But I have to say, I've, I've probably spoken to... Uh, probably, uh, certainly more than 100 um, uh, asylum seekers from different places over the recent weeks, and none of them have said they want to go to Ireland. Um, only a couple of them have said they want to go to Britain, even though many of them um, speak good English. The vast majority do say, um, we'd like to go to Germany, the Netherlands, Sweden, uh, other Scandinavian countries, Belgium. Um, and most of them do... Uh, or, or many of them, at least, do have some kind of connection with those places. They have a friend or a relative who has managed to establish some kind of life in those countries. Um, but also, I mean, it's, it's extraordinary that all along the route we see how um, how they are, they are plugged into social media and they are using technology all the way along to to monitor the news, to monitor the safest routes, to monitor developments in the different countries. So. Um, they're also reading stories about how Germany is the most welcoming country. So, as you said, outside Kelty train station in Budapest today, and over the last few days, actually, you have hundreds of asylum seekers chanting Germany, saying we want to go to Germany. Um, and they're reading the same stories that we're reading and that we're, that we're publishing, even, um, tell, uh, saying that Germany is basically ready to accept something like 800,000 asylum seekers this year, whereas lots of other countries are, are keen to... To, um, to, to to close their borders and tighten their border controls and keep uh, keep asylum seekers out. So they're fully aware of which countries are are, are the most welcoming, and um, and yeah, I mean the, the overwhelming majority do do intend to move to Germany, whether they have a connection there or whether they they are now simply they they do see it as a kind of promised land in Europe now, um, certainly as opposed to Central Europe and and beyond. I mean, lots of people. Um, they, they 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 think of crossing another sea to get to uh, to get to Britain or Ireland, and and it's just too daunting a prospect for them here. They see Germany, a big country in the centre of Europe, which once they reach Hungary is not too far away. It's open to them, and um, that's the country that, uh, that the majority of them want to head for. 
And finally, Dan, just to come back, I suppose, to where we come in uh, talking about the political crisis this has become for the European Union. Um, the EU Justice and Home Affairs Ministers are meeting next Monday to discuss this uh, issue. Um, what do you think, uh, what kind of solutions do you think they, they ought to be discussing at that meeting? Um, as we as we see it now, the, the whole border system, the Schengen system of uh, borderless travel is being put into jeopardy by the, these waves of, uh, of people moving through the borders, by Hungary, for example, uh, uh, changing its rules even day to day on whether asylum seekers can, can, can travel internationally um, without papers or not. Um, we saw yesterday Austria closing its border to um, and conducting very, very rigorous checks on vehicles moving through the border. So the Schengen system has to be dealt with. Uh, obviously, this, this question of quotas will be on the table. If Eastern European countries are to be persuaded to take a certain amount of um, refugees on a quota system, uh, huge amounts of money, I would imagine, would have to be thrown at it from, from an EU budget to persuade these uh, Central and Eastern European countries that they can that they can cope with it that they'll be able to deal with it and they won't have to take money out of their own pretty tight budgets to deal with with uh, with uh, refugees coming in um, and a, a whole host of questions really which um, which uh, are only becoming more and more pressing by the day because there's there's no sign of this uh, migration flow uh, uh, abating uh, and and international aid agencies aid aid agencies suggest that um, the flow is only going to, to, to continue at the current pace or even increase as we head towards winter, with lots of people from the Middle East seeing the next month or six weeks as perhaps the last chance to, to make it to a safe haven in Europe before, um, before the cold weather sets in on this Balkan route. So there's a crucial six weeks or two months ahead, and uh, this meeting of ministers from the European Union really has to make some major decisions, uh, or, or to at least um, set the stage for major decisions to be taken um, sooner rather than later. Okay, well done. We'll leave it there for now. I fear this is probably not the, not the last time we'll be discussing this this issue, but thank you very much for that analysis today. That's it from this week's edition of Worldview. From producer Declan Conlon, Sound engineer Gary White and for me, Chris Dooley, thank you for listening. Goodbye.